Something I rarely do is I ask you a question at the beginning of a message, but I'm going to do that this morning. How many of you have ever flown commercially? You've gotten on a jet plane or a prop plane. You've flown somewhere. Keep your hands up for a minute. Of those with your hands in the air, I'm glad to see there's so many frequent flyers. Isn't it nice? Aren't the skies friendlier these days? Okay, no, no, my second question is, of those who have your hands up, how many of you with your hands up who have flown can explain to me the principles of flight? Two, three, four people out of a whole gym. The rest of you, what are you thinking? You can put your hands down. Why would you get on an airplane and you don't even know how it works? Come on, that is crazy. That to me is absolutely crazy. And you want to know why? Because for the longest time in my life, I had a horrific fear of flying. I did. I was one of those people. And, and I, was, I was the guy sitting next to you who had the barf bag out in clear sight. I, I wouldn't hold on to it because that's too obvious, but knowing exactly that I could get it in just under a second was key, okay? My stomach would get all churned. I would grab the, the, the armrest so hard that by the end of the flight, I couldn't hold, I had no Agrippa for about several days afterwards. It just, you know, all the blood drained right out of my hands. I mean, I, it was awful. I hated it. And in the summer, on the July 4th weekend in the summer of 1989, Jenny's uh, parents flew me to Virginia so that Jenny and I could see each other. That was the summer we spent apart. I can't remember a single thing about that weekend, but I can tell you exactly everything about the flight home. <laughs> For starters, uh, I, I, we took off at what is now Reagan Airport in Washington, D.C., back in the day when you would actually get out on the tarmac and walk up, you know, walk up one of those staircase things like the president uses, only this was a small prop plane, seated about 40 people. And as we took off, I remember the fireworks. This was on July 4th, okay, that I flew home. And as we were taking off and, and reaching our cruising altitude, what a joke, um, you, I could see the fireworks display on the mall of Washington, D.C. But I was so terrified, I didn't enjoy any minute of it. Once we reached our cruising altitude in the cloud deck, because that's as high as those little prop planes can go, it was... You know, up and down and feeling like I swallowed my heart again. And I remember saying to Jenny, in a loving way, don't you ever do that to me again. Yes, I had to repent of that statement many, many times over many, many years. To me, to me, now I, I can fly fine anywhere today because I've gotten over my fear of flying. But a long time ago, it, it, it took a tremendous amount of faith to get on an airplane uh, and a tremendous exercise of faith. Dave Ramsey, in his course, Financial Peace University, he talks about a $1,000 emergency fund. He says, you know, you should set aside at least $1,000 for a rainy day in case the car breaks down or the water heater goes kaboom and leaks all over your floor. You should have some money set aside. And I have faith in that money. I have a little more than an emergency fund set aside. And I got to tell you, when things go wrong, when things break down, I don't panic because I'm relying on that emergency fund to bail me out, literally, <laughs> of some sticky predicaments. Today, today, I know my basement's flooded like 15 times, okay? So I should know what it means to get bailed out, literally. Um, today, I want to talk to you about faith. And I want to talk to you uh, about faith because it's, in, it's an important component in understanding the gospel. 
According to the Bible, faith is the effective response to the gospel. By responding to the gospel with faith, you and I are made right with God. And, and so I want to get into it. Most people in the United States think they understand faith. They'll say, well, you know, kids believe in Santa Claus. Um, Christians believe in Jesus. Some people believe in fairies. Nerds believe in extraterrestrial life. You know, everybody believes in something, right? Okay? And so uh, I want to talk about biblical faith because biblical faith isn't any of those things. Biblical faith is not just believing in fairies or believing in Santa Claus. And to do that, I want to walk through Paul's explanation of the nature of faith. And it's found in Romans chapter 4. That's where we're going to be today, Romans chapter 4. Over the past several weeks, I've been laying out the gospel. And the gospel is this Greek word, euangelion, which simply means good news. Okay? Good news. In the first century, Christians would go from town to town, village to village, and they felt compelled to share the gospel to the point of being ridiculed, to the point of being harassed, to the point of being beaten, sometimes run out of town, sometimes arrested, sometimes killed, all because they were sharing this gospel. I think it's important to know what this is. In fact, the book of Romans in your Bible is Paul's lengthy explanation of what the gospel is. And really, the gospel in a nutshell is what God has done through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, on behalf of sinners. That's the gospel. That's the good news in a nutshell. And I want to unpack that uh, because faith is an important thing. It's an important component to it. And in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Paul talks about the nature of of faith. What exactly is saving faith? What does it look like? How is it different than simply believing in fairies, so to speak? All right. He says this, even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about a hundred years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead and so was Sarah's womb. Paul's talking about Abraham, this guy from 2,000 years ago, roughly, okay? And and this little phrase here, uh, for God had said to him, that's how many descendants you'll have. When God was talking to Abraham, God was asking Abraham to look up into the sky and see tons and tons and tons of stars, And he was telling Abraham this when Abraham was about 75 or 80 years old. And he's saying, see all the stars? You can't count them. You can't number them. That's how many kids and grandkids and great-grandkids you're going to have. Ha, 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 ha. Right? I mean, from a physical standpoint, do 80-year-olds have children? No. 80-year-olds do not have children. They're past their reproductive prime. And he uses this phrase, even though, twice, even though there was no reason for hope, even though uh, at about 100 years of age, they figured his body was as good as dead. That's a key phrase to me. Abraham did not allow circumstances to weaken his confidence that God would do what he promised. Let's go to the next couple of verses, verses 20 and 21. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, 
His faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. He was fully convinced that God will do whatever he promises. At the end of the day, Abraham was convinced God's going to deliver. God's going to deliver the goods. And the Bible tells us that Abraham's faith wasn't a perfect faith. Have you ever thought, well, I need to have a perfect faith? I need, to, I need to believe in God perfectly, maybe like some of the people in the Bible. Well, let's look at some of the people in the Bible. Abraham laughed. He did. His wife laughed even harder. Abraham's faith wasn't flawless. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't absolutely without any doubt whatsoever. But it was enough. It was confidence, okay? So what is faith exactly? I would love for you to substitute a word. Instead of talking about faith, it's probably better to talk about confidence. I am confident in God. Or reliance, the word reliance. I am relying on what God has done through Jesus Christ to be made right with him. Nothing else. That's what I'm relying on. That's faith. Okay? Let's unpack this a little more. Verses 22 and 23. Because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit. Paul's saying, hey, this isn't just for Abraham. This is for you and I and anyone else who's going to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And then he lays it out. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him the one who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. So what is it that you and I are relying on? We're relying on God for a righteous verdict. We talked last week and the week before about sin. I don't know about you, but hi, I'm Max. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I don't measure up. I'm not the best husband I could be. I'm not the best father I could be. I don't even obey all 613 commandments in the Old Testament. I'm lucky if I probably do 40 of them. I am far from perfect. When I die, when I face God face to face, I got to be honest. I don't want him looking at my life. And I'm better than some. I don't want him snooping around at what I've done and what I haven't done as if that's somehow going to be the measurement by which he lets me in and he, he makes me his son and he adopts me the way Paul talks about in the Bible. See, what you and I are relying on is a right verdict from God. We're counting and relying and having confidence that at the end of the day, God's going to look at Jesus and not at us. And that's what we talked about last week in substitutionary atonement. It would be foolish, wouldn't it? Think about it. Someday you're going to die. When that moment comes, or if Jesus comes back, whichever comes first, and you're face to face with God, do you really want God looking at you to determine whether or not you're acceptable in his sight? I mean, really? I mean, I know some of us are cocky, but I think even the most cocky among us would go, oh, no, run away, scream like a girl, oh, okay? See, I can do that pretty well. Some people will do that on Judgment Day, okay? But when you put your faith and confidence in Jesus Christ, what you're saying is, you're saying, Jesus stood in my place. He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death that I deserved. Hey, God, look at him. Don't look at me. 
That's biblical faith. That's saving faith. And that's why the gospel is absolutely ridiculous if you think about it. I mean, come on. Every other religion on the planet is all about becoming a better person. And hopefully you have enough good things that you're better than the people who are not acceptable in God's sight. Or you're good enough to make the cut, whatever the cut is. Every other religion is designed that way. But Christianity isn't. That's why the gospel is good news. There's nothing that you and I can do to earn it. Uh, Think about it this way. If you were given a job by a relative or a friend, at some point along the way, some of your coworkers would start murmuring about you. They would be saying things like, you know, they really didn't deserve that. You know, they were just given that. It's not like they earned it. It's not like they deserve it. And they'd be absolutely right. And that would be an embarrassment, wouldn't it? Because in the marketplace, you're supposed to earn what you get. We're hardwired that way, I think. We, want, we really do. And especially us in America, we want to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We want ourselves to be enough. We want to earn our way in. And it doesn't work that way with God. It doesn't work that way with God. I'm right with God because of what God did through Jesus Christ. So let me ask a question this morning. What are you relying on to work things out with God in your life? Assuming that someday you're going to die or Jesus comes back, okay? What are you relying on? Who are you relying on to make things work out with God? I mean, you know enough about yourself. You know you're not perfect, Your spouse knows you're not perfect. They should at least accept that, right? Okay, but you know these things. So in that moment, what what are you relying on? Who are you relying on? If you're hoping and relying on the fact that you're good enough or that you're better than your neighbor, that's going to fail. If you're relying on the fact that, you know what? Lord, I've been in church. I go to church regularly, at least 40 Sundays out of the year. That's going to fail. If you're relying on having prayed a prayer or, or signed a card or been baptized, those are good things, Christian things, but that in the, at the end of the day, that's not enough. That's, that's going to fail you. And so here's my challenge for some of you that have been relying on other things, and it's really simple. Give it up. Lay it down and embrace the gospel. Jesus Christ is enough, period. He is enough. What God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, is enough. That's all you need. And it sounds crazy, and it is crazy, but it's the gospel. And 2,000 years ago, I still believe in the power of the gospel. And if you ever wanted to pray a faith-filled prayer in talking to God about it, I like this one more than, oh, God, I'm sorry. Here's, Here's a prayer. Hey, God, don't look at me. Look at your son. He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death that I deserve. Today, I renounce all other trusts, everything, going to church, being good enough, I throw it all away. I renounce them all. My only hope is in him. Today, make me righteous because of your son, because of Jesus. That's a faith-filled gospel prayer. For those of you uh, that are, have been Christians a while, I, I want to suggest to you what John Piper would say. And if John Piper were here, I know I never cha- channel him, but today I'm going to channel, channel him for a moment. He would say this. He would say, O oh, believer, 
you never, 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 never outgrow your need for the gospel. You never, ever outgrow your need for the gospel. You don't get saved by the power of the gospel and then get strong by leaving it and doing something else. God will give you what you need. Think about this for a moment. What you needed the most was to be made right with him. What you needed the most was to have some way to deal with your sinfulness. And God did that. God provided that through the death and resurrection of his son. And when you trusted him for that, when you began and you said, you know what, I'm going to rely on that and nothing else. If you're relying on God to basically save your life, do you really need to worry about money so much? I mean, think about it. If you're trusting him for eternity and you believe this stuff is real, will God give you what you need monetarily? Can you trust him with your relationships, your spouse that needs to change, the brother that you just want to whack along the side of the head? Can you trust God with those things as well? Yeah, you can. Isn't God enough? I say he is. God and nothing else is what you need, is what I need. And on this Easter day, I wanted Jesus and Jesus crucified and resurrected to be front and center, not something to make a better life for you or seven steps to happiness or how to have the best successful life you can have. I wanted you to, to have what you need, which is God and only God. Because if you think about it, God gives salvation, he gives freedom, he gives life and life abundant, he gives peace, he gives joy, he gives love. What else do you need, really?